This is Shopify Masters, the e-commerce marketing podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs. It's powered by Shopify, the easiest way to sell online, in person, and anywhere in between. To get an extended 30-day trial, visit shopify.com slash masters. Hey, entrepreneurs, my name is Felix, and I'm the host of the Shopify Masters podcast. Each week, we put out podcast interviews with successful e-commerce entrepreneurs or experts to give you inspiration, motivation, and actionable tips to increase your traffic and sales so your store can generate the sales you need to live the life you want. On the last episode, Chad Rubin from thinkcrucial.com explains how he's built an eight-figure business and manages to sell on multiple platforms with just a small team. In this episode, you'll learn how an entrepreneur built a mailing list manually and launched it to $80,000 in sales. In this episode, you'll learn how to identify if an idea can actually become a profitable business, why you don't need to create a completely innovative idea, but just make an existing one marginally better, and how to get into an industry that you know nothing about. Today, I'm joined by Nate Chekis from Roan.com. That's R-H-O-N-E.com. Roan makes premium activewear design and built specifically for men and was started in 2013 and based out of New Canaan, Connecticut. Welcome, Nate. Hey, Felix. How are you doing? Good, good. So tell us a bit more about uh, your story and what are some of the most popular products that you sell? Okay, well, you know, the the company kind of was started back, the idea came in 2013 and really it was, like most things, it was a result of an issue, right? My brother-in-law and I, um, we were both very active. Um, He and I both live in Connecticut but commuted to New York City on the train every day. And so we just got to talking about kind of the state of uh, men's workout clothing and how most of the stuff was really cheap and would fall apart easily. And um, and we were generally working out right before we got on the train. So it was kind of a natural part of the conversation. And, and his wife, which is my older sister, had once said to me kind of at a family get together that my shirt, which was freshly laundered, smelled bad. And you know, nobody, nobody likes to be told that they smell bad. That's just a terrible thing to hear. So, um, we were kind of talking about it and started doing some research. And what we found is that most active and performance clothing is treated with chemicals that wash out over time. And in fact, there's an industry accepted standard, which is 15 to 20 washes. So you can imagine, you know, if you spent real money on this workout clothing, it's kind of shocking to know that the clothing, the company that makes that clothing plans for it to fall apart after 15 to 20 washes, that it's actually going to absorb your sweat and the bacteria. And 90% of odor is caused by bacteria. So, um, so we started asking ourselves, well, you know, is there anything better out on the market? And what we found is that the US military and NASA used this encapsulated silver thread that this, the, the way it works is silver was actually melted down and extruded into a polyester-based yarn and blended with certain fabrics to permanently fight odor and bacteria. And um, what we started doing is we started reaching out to all the different groups that uh, manufactured this on a commercial level and kind of asked the question, why is no one doing this for workout clothing mm-hmm. is targeted specifically at men. And that's really how the company was born. It was just by asking those questions. Um, 
And, uh, and we started very simply just selling to friends and family, built, you know, a, a Shopify, uh, store with a basic theme. And, um, and, you know, now the company's grown quite a bit, uh, since that point. And, you know, our most successful products to answer your other question are really our, our shorts and our short sleeve, uh, t-shirts, but we've got a lot of different styles now. And, uh, and I'm very, very proud of the product and company that we've built. Hmm, very cool. So you know, like you were saying, this is a result of a personal issue you had that you guys worked out, uh, but the clothing still smelled even after it was freshly laundered, like you said, and you started asking these questions. Did you guys have the intention of starting a business or were you just looking for a solution for yourself? Like, Tell us about how this problem that you had personally, how did it evolve into actually thinking that maybe we can turn this into a business? Well, you know, I, I've always kind of been an entrepreneur and that sounds cliche to say nowadays because I feel like it's it's kind of become popular to just mm-hmm. be an entrepreneur but that's that's how um, my mind works was kind of you know when I was younger uh, I was always the kid doing the lemonade stand and uh, you know quickly evolved into um, going and finding the nearest golf course and and jumping in the lakes and picking out golf balls and selling golf balls back to the the golfers and, um, you know, and, and we did car washes. And then when I was, uh, 15, my parents said, well, you need to save up some money so you can pay for the summer, uh, camps and activities that you have going on. And so I, I actually built my own summer camp for little kids ages three to six. Nice. And, um, and, and that's how I made my summer living. I actually earned enough money that that's how I bought my first car um, and had saved enough money that eventually when I proposed to my wife, that's how I bought the engagement ring. So, you know, I, I really believed in this idea of if you want something to exist in the world, you got to go build it. And um, so it was a very natural progression for me while we were having these conversations of something like this truly didn't exist uh, that we felt was targeted and, and, and really meant for men. And so it was a natural evolution to say, well, can we make it? And then the next more, more important question to ask is, can we, can we sell it? Um, can we get people to, to buy it? Because nowadays it's pretty easy to find manufacturers and, and build something. The real question is, can you, can you sell it? Can you convince people that it's worth spending their hard earned money on? And that's a question we have to ask ourselves every day is, you know, we want this to be valuable and provide real value to our end consumers. Um, it's not just can we get them to buy it once, it's can we get them to come back and buy over and over again. Yeah, let's talk about this a little bit more because I've heard you say this a couple of times already now about how you just start asking questions and it seems like it's a natural maybe curiosity for you to, to figure out what kind of questions to be asking and what kind of answers to look for. So how, how do you begin this approach then of uh, having an idea for a business, having an idea for a product and how do you actually, what kind of questions do you ask yourself to determine if it can be a profitable business or not? Yeah, well, I think there's a lot of different types of businesses out there. I was actually speaking recently at a university and uh, a girl raised her hand and she said, what do you do if you feel like all the good ideas are taken? Mm. <laughs> and this class was an entrepreneurship class. And I, so I, you know, I didn't really know quite what to say, I, but my first reaction was, well, you're probably in the wrong class, right? Um, but you know, I then reminded her that the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office actually closed at one point because 
I, I, at least as it was explained to me, uh, when the toaster came out, it was the, the patent office kind of said, well, that's everything. <laughs> you know, we've invented everything there is to invent. So um, not sure that we should kind of keep on going. And, and obviously we know that so many things have come since the invention of the toaster. And the reality is, is that innovation breeds innovation and new ideas create more ideas. You think about how many businesses were invented just off of social media alone, not just the platforms, but mm -hmm. all the tools and the apps. And you know, Shopify is a good example of this. The whole app community that and, and ecosystem that exists off of Shopify. So I think it really is about asking questions and not just always about inventing new things. Sometimes it's just about making things marginally better. You know, a, a great example of this is Trunk Club, um, which built uh, an automated personal shopping platform, basically. And really, they weren't doing anything new or, or had really good IP around it. But what they did do is they found a way to remove friction from the shopping process. And so I think for, for me, when I evaluate and assess businesses, it's always just a question of, can I make it incrementally better? Can I create value? Um, and, and oftentimes it's, it's self-motivated. Is, is this something I would want or something mm -hmm. that I would be interested in? Yeah, this idea of marginally better rather than trying to become completely innovative is something that I've heard a lot from, especially seasoned entrepreneurs that have seen new products, that have seen or that have taken existing products and just made small improvements over them and created you know million dollar businesses off of it. But how do you you know figure out what that thing is like? What what that that particular feature that you can improve, that particular feature that you can add? Not necessarily how can you figure out what it is, but how can you figure out that by doing this, it can actually create a business for you that will actually win customers from the you know the alternative that does not have these marginally beneficial, I guess, uh, value adds? Well, I think there's a couple of practical questions that you have to ask yourself. And, and, and you know, the, the first is, and people have ideas all the time. So, um, you know, really you have to ask yourself some hard questions. Even if you have a really great idea on how to improve something, you have to ask yourself, am I ready to put the time, effort, energy, commitment, heartache, you know, ups and downs into building and selling a product? Um, some people just aren't built for that. And, and, you know, and the other thing is, is that now there are so many tools to help you take something from concept to selling that just didn't exist before. So, um, you know, once you kind of get past that point in your mind, then you need to start asking yourself some really practical questions. What is the total addressable market size for whatever idea I've come up with? You know, take any widget out there. Um, let's say that you create a new tool for farmers to um, improve their, their growing season. Well, now you've got to ask yourself, how many farmers can I practically reach with this new widget or tool, um, you know, there's research tools. Go, I mean, we've got the biggest, biggest accessible research library uh, available to all of us in the form of Google. You can just go start asking yourself questions and and researching, and then you can find a right. Well, you know, I've identified that there's 500,000 farmers that fit the need of this widget. Okay, what percentage of that population do I think I can meaningfully reach? and convert. And if you start getting into the neighborhood of, well, 
in order for this business to be successful, I have to convert five or even 10 or 15 or 20% of my total addressable market. That's a hard business mm. because that kind of market share takes a long time to earn. What I liked about this business in particular is there are, sev- there are going to be many billion dollar winners in this category. Um, it is a massive, massive market size. So um, the, the U.S. sportswear market is an $83 billion market from the research that we did. So we felt, okay, if we could go and we could carve a niche for ourselves in premium men's active, we could still build a billion-dollar company. Um, and for us, that was, that was a pursuit that we looked at. But even if we failed reaching that, we could still build a very meaningful size business because the market size was so big. Um, oftentimes, you know, you, you hear uh, the idea of kind of go small, go niche, and I think that's important, but you also need to pick your head up and say, okay, am I, am I creating something for a market size of 100 people? And if so, you know, can I realistically reach 50% of those people? And if I reach 50% of those people, how much money am I making per person and then you can figure out whether or not you really have a product or a company or you know something in between or neither. Uh, but you really ha- you really need to do that work up front. I'm amazed how many people just say, "Oh, I've got this great idea and I've started spending time and I've engaged this factory." And it's like you haven't done any work in thinking about whether or not this is a good idea and if there's a big enough market out there to reach it. Yeah, I think that there's this um, honeymoon phase, it almost seems, with entrepreneurship where it's so exciting to think about all these ideas, think about pursuing these ideas, but then uh, I'm not sure if it's fear or just ignorance and ignoring these the hard data, the actual numbers, the math behind, is it going to be an actual business? Can it become a company or is it just a product? Like these questions that you you were talking about. So, you know, after you kind of think through all this and, and do the math and do the homework and realize that, okay, there is a potential here to build a very profitable, maybe million, maybe billion dollar business. Uh, do you, I'm assuming next you have to actually validate this in the real world. Did you go through a process like this with uh, with Roan? Yeah, we you know we did. So uh, we did the research and we kind of came back and said there is absolutely a void in the marketplace for anything like this. Nobody was doing um, what we felt needed to be done in the space. And so then we started asking ourselves the question: Can you know? Can we say we can build it? Can we actually build it? So we started very simple, and we looked at um, sites like Odesk and Elance, which are now joined together um, as this great outsourcing community, and we started trying to find apparel manufacturers. Neither me nor my brother-in-law came from fashion or from apparel or from manufacturing. Um, He was an investor in retail companies, and I was working at the NFL at the time. Um, in the sponsorship strategy group. So neither of us had any real relevant experience. And so we had to just ask a lot of questions. And it was funny, you know, the, sometimes the questions we asked, it was like, you know, they were very, very obvious. Um, and, you know, the people, it almost discredited us uh, to ask these questions, the people we were talking to. But we quickly learned by asking these questions and not being afraid to ask those questions. And, um, and, and so uh, we found a couple of providers 
and um, we started interviewing them. And one provider in particular was led by the former head of the first head of innovation at Nike. And we said to him, hey, we've got this great idea and this company that we want to build. And, you know, we we want you to uh, to help us manufacture the clothing. And I, I'll never forget. He said, well, I don't really work with startups. And we said, well, we're different. <laughs> mm-hmm. Listen to us. We've got a, We've got this great pitch and we've got a marketing deck. And he's like, OK, well, you can come and, and pitch me on what you're doing. So we walked him through our thinking. We walked him through our market validation and we finished the presentation and it was kind of quiet. And he said, you know, I have been waiting for somebody to go after this segment. I think they had like 30 companies that they were helping and big companies too. They, they didn't work for Lululemon and Nike and, um, and North Face and, and bodybuilding.com and Lole. And so big companies in the activewear space. And he said, you're right. Nobody is going after this space the right way. I personally want to help design your first line. And that was a game-changing moment for us because, um, you know, to have somebody with that kind of credibility and pedigree get involved uh, so early on was was really, really helpful. And then, you know, even still, after we were working with a credible group, we were getting prototypes back and we, we just kept asking questions. Why does it feel this way? Why is this fabric more expensive than this fabric over here? Why does it take so long to manufacture? Are there ways of shortening that time? Um, you know, are there ways of increasing or decreasing the number of quantities we need to make? How does that impact pricing? And uh, just, again, so many questions. And that kind of slowly built a knowledge set. And we started to surround ourselves with really smart, great advisors that we trusted and could help us, you know, kind of call BS with our partners if if we felt like that needed to be done. So, um, you know, it, it it really came in incremental steps, but asking a lot of questions. Mm, so you you clearly you and your brother you said brother in law, brother in law, yeah. Yeah. So you and your brother in law clearly had like you're saying no relevant experience, knew nothing about it, and taught yourself. Now now looking back, um, hindsight, looking back at all that you went through. You know, a lot of um, whenever you start a business, start a company, you always want to stack the odds in your favor. You want to make sure you have all the advantages on your side. And one big disadvantage right off the bat, like, was what you're saying that you did not have any relevant experience. Looking back, would you be hesitant next time to go into an industry that you didn't know anything about? Like, would you lean towards looking at what you might already uh, look? Looking back at kind of your your experiences and trying to find something that overlaps with your previous ex- experience, or do you think it doesn't matter that much? Yeah, I, I, you know, I feel like saying, oh, I, I don't know that or I don't come from that industry is really more of a giant excuse than anything else. The, the pathway to knowledge, you know, maybe not mastery, but the pathway to knowledge is so short now. It's shorter than it's ever been because you can really, you know, in, in, in an hour, I can find the 30 experts in the world on astrophysics, you know, that and how it applies to marine biology, uh, whatever it is, you can find experts in any given field um, just by doing some quick searching. And uh, I, I really believe that ignorance is oftentimes an entrepreneur's best friend because if you came from an industry and you knew how difficult it was to accomplish a certain task, you'd likely be so paralyzed mm. 
with that fear that you wouldn't even take the first step. I mean, if I truly came from retail and manufacturing, I'm not sure I would have ever started this company mm. to begin with because I would have been afraid about all the complexities and all the things that can go wrong and, you know, getting fabric to the to the cut and sew manufacturing and getting the seams right and the fit dialed in and the, you know, the, the color to come through the right way and, you know, the margins to be right. And there's just so many complex things in any given industry that I think um, oftentimes when you see innovation, it comes from somebody who didn't come from that world because one, they think about it differently. And two, they're not afraid. They don't have these preconceived notions of what's right and what's wrong and what to do. So, you know, it, it does help to have that relevant industry experience, but I certainly don't think it's a prerequisite to be successful in a given field. Mm, yeah, and like you were saying, you you guys really put yourself out there, made yourself very vulnerable by exposing your ignorance so that you could get answers, so that you could get help, so that you could ask these questions. I think sometimes a concern for a lot of entrepreneurs is that, you know, I think one of the concerns at least is that they don't know how to figure out who's actually an expert and who's just you know BSing, I guess, essentially, because you don't have that kind of context and you are you know looking to other people for their expertise, but then because you know so little is it was it hard for you to figure out you know who's an expert who's not did you ever run into those kind of issues totally that you know that is a very real issue and i think one that entrepreneurs really face because um it's it's hard when you don't come from a field you know for for you to be able to say to call somebody out and um to really hold them accountable on their opinion because you know when we first got started we if somebody told us they were an apparel expert, we had no way of validating or ver- verifying that. So, you know, part of it was just asking people within our network and um, and kind of trying to validate people that way. And, and if somebody was going to be an advisor or was going to be compensated for it, um, then we really tried to do extra homework and ask for references and call people and say, you know, have you worked with this person? How knowledgeable of the industry would you say they are? Um, but you know, the great news is is that we were able to find a lot of advisors who weren't looking to make money off of this, but were just trying to be helpful. And I was amazed at how many people were so willing to give up of their time and uh, their expertise without any expectation whatsoever in return. They were just trying to be good and and helpful. And 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 generally, when you came into situations like that. I found that that people were pretty genuine. If they didn't know the answer to something, they would tell you uh, because they didn't have any perverse incentives. It's it's the situations where you have an advisor or somebody's trying to give you, you know, somebody's trying to get something in return for helping you. Those you need to just you, you need to have both eyes wide open. Mm, so you you do your homework to do your own research, look to your your trusted network, and then look at people's incentives, right? See what what could they be motivated by? And like you're saying, if they're just trying to make a buck off of you, then you should be more suspicious than someone that's just trying to help and not expect anything in return. So the, the second, I think, concern um, that, that some entrepreneurs might have about you know, talking to, especially talking to these providers early on that have a lot of resources is the fear of getting their ideas stolen. Was this yeah. ever a fear that entered your mind, you know, approaching someone that has a resource, like you're saying, this provider you worked with, worked with 30 other companies, Nike being one of them. Was it ever a concern in your head that maybe they'll just take this idea and run with it without us? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I feel like, and 
I started a company writing out of college and it was a very unique idea. It was basically building a mobile point of sale system on your cell phone uh, that allowed you to order food and merchandise from your seat at sporting events. And at the time, the iPhone wasn't even out yet when we first kind of put the business plan uh, into existence. And um, I remember being terrified of sharing that idea. If I ever spoke to anyone, it was like, oh, I need an NDA. <laughs> and um, I, that was really just such a mistake. I mean, there are very few ideas that are just so unique that um, that people will steal them. Most of the time, anybody who's worth their salt, you know, they're, they're usually busy doing something else. They wouldn't have the time, the resources, or the bandwidth to even take your idea and really mm. do something with it. Now, there are situations that come up and and things that happen that way. But I think far more often, there are ideas that die because people overcomplicate the business starting out. You know, they require, oh, I'm not going to tell you my idea because I need NDAs. And this happens to me all the time. I have entrepreneurs reach out, can I get a couple minutes of your time? I'd, I'd like your help with something. I get on the phone with them and uh, they say, well, I can't really talk to you until you sign an NDA. And I just say to them, well, um, you know, I, I totally appreciate that, but uh, you know, I just, it's not that I'm unwilling to sign an NDA, but it's hard to know and look at all these forms. And if I need to mark it up, it's just, I'd mm. rather just not talk about it um, and rather not learn your, your super secret million dollar awesome idea that nobody's ever had before. Um, so I think, I think that people, you know, you need to be careful, you need to be smart, but I would err on the side of being more open and transparent and even vulnerable because that's generally what leads to help um, and people willing to, uh, you know, especially good people, um, people being willing in to dive in and, and help you out. Yeah, this is one of the um, key things that, that I've learned too is that in order for people to trust you, you have to put your trust in them first. And one of the biggest steps towards that that direction is to be vulnerable, to say like, I'm willing to open this up to you because I trust you. And then in return, they're much more likely to give you their trust as well. And, uh, and you know, one, th one important thing that I also want to, uh, I guess, get you to elaborate more on is this idea of overcomplication. And I, and I totally agree with this too, where, where a lot of businesses just tend to stall out. It's not like they can't eventually be successful, but they add so many roadblocks, so many hurdles into their own path that they kind of stumble over their, their own obstacles that they put out there. Are there other examples you can think of that, that you see other entrepreneurs adding friction or overcomplicating that you made once you makes you maybe want to tear kind of rip your hair out, just seeing how much, <laughs> yeah work they're putting on themselves that they don't need to be putting on themselves? Yeah. And, and by the way, you know, in all of this, uh, the only reason I have any perspective on these things is because I probably made every mistake that was mm -hmm. possible. Um, but, you know, you talk about overcomplicating. Uh, it's a natural tendency for all of us to do. And, you know, one of the things that always makes me laugh is when people spend a lot of time on their logo and their business card and the name. And it's like, that's what everybody wants to spend time on up front. But, you know, it's not that those things aren't important. A good or a bad business name, you know, can certainly have an impact. A good or a bad logo can have an impact. But those things don't matter if you don't do the fundamental things of creating value in the first place. So when we started Roan, we didn't 
have a name and we uh we just called the company Nuco. So every time we talked about it we just said, oh, you know, what 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 should the Nuco's product be or you know, how many styles should Nuco have and and eventually we um once we felt like we had a business that was worth building and and building and developing the marks for, we said, "Okay, now let's take the time to to do that." And you know, rather than start off and say, oh, we, we need to have company email addresses and we need to have, um, you know, we need to have the logo and we need to have, it's just, that stuff's fun. Uh, but it's, I, you know, my friend Noah Kagan, he, he calls these people entrepreneurs instead of entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. It's people who, uh, you know, who, who spend time on the idea of being an entrepreneur rather than on the things that actually create value. A good example of this is I, I spoke to these guys who were really clever and they, um, you know, they had this concept of basically a very creative concept of turning cemeteries into kind of a, a social network, if you will. Um, mm-hmm. And obviously these people are dead, so they can't create their own profiles. But the idea is that friends and family members could um, create profiles for people that were buried and then you know, if you were visiting um, a, a deceased friend or loved one, you could, in theory, go around and 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 learn about the lives of people in the cemetery. And kind of this very clever idea. And they had, you know, this idea about using QR codes. And um, at the time, nothing like this existed. I think Ancestry and others have built out something like this. But they were so focused on getting people to pay for it up front. And I said you know, rather than getting people to pay for it and then going and building it, are there ways that you could create value in the short term that cost you and them nothing? A good example of this is getting letters of intent. So they start going around, I think, or uh, at least this is what I encourage them to do. I don't know if they ever did it, but going around to all the cemeteries and just asking if a product like this existed, would you be willing to install it or offer it up as an option to your patrons? Um, and, uh, or, you know, I guess they're not offering it up to their patrons, but you know what I mean? The people mm-hmm. who are um, uh, making those decisions. And it, that's, that's what you need to focus on as an entrepreneur is what can I do to create value, um, create real value so that eventually either I can sell this uh, or I can get somebody to give me some money to put some money into the business. Um, we often focus on the things that really don't matter um, in, in building value. Uh, this, this is, I think, an important way that you're phrasing it too because you're not talking about finding ways to sell, finding ways to pitch your product. You're talking specifically about creating value, creating value for, a deal, you know, obviously your, your end customers. I think a potential fear of entrepreneurs is that they might spend so much time on what they think is valuable creating that thing and then it not I guess paying off for them in the long run is there ever and I guess a a chance that that could happen I guess there's a chance for anything to happen but can you is it a real fear that people should have that they might spend a lot of time creating value but then not have a setup I guess in the right way for them to uh, benefit from it or at least to be able to fund a company fund a company to to build a company off of it yeah, I mean, I, I guess they should have a, um, a healthy amount of skepticism, but, you know, welcome, welcome to the, the world, right? Like there's so many jobs are like this. You, you talk about real estate brokers. 
they could show somebody 50 houses and those people might not ever buy a house. Mm. Um, and, and, and that's real time and money uh, that this real estate broker has spent driving around and, um, and you know, there's opportunity costs there. And you know, it, every, every, most businesses have a component of that. And the reality is, is there's no problem or challenge so big that sitting there being afraid of it is actually going to fix the problem in and of itself. So I think, you know, I think people should have a healthy amount of skepticism and, and make sure that they're spending time on high priority, high value tasks, um, but not, you know, not overly concern themselves with, well, this might not pay off mm -hmm. because the reality is, is you've got to just you've got to hustle. You got to drive so hard. I mean, I can't even tell you we've raised, we've raised some great money, but there were plenty of conversations that were dead ends. And, you know, uh, so-and-so has got a, a wealthy uncle who, you know, knows a friend. And it's like, I just spoke to everybody, just, just spoke to everybody. And, you know, eventually I've gotten better at discerning, but I only built that expertise by failing a lot of times and trying a lot of different things. Mm, yeah, very good point. Uh, so I want to go back to your experience with Upwork and, or I guess Odesk and Elance at that time, which is now called Upwork. And you, you know, when I hear about Upwork is usually for hiring things like assistants, uh, designers, or basically very, I guess, computer technical kind of work, but you went to Upwork to find somebody that was a, a manufacturer or a provider. Like tell us, tell us a little bit more about that experience. Like how did you... <laughs> Was there a, a category for this type of, uh, I guess, provider that you're looking for? Yeah, I mean, once I discovered um, Upwork, which, you know, at the time I was using Odesk, but now Upwork, um, I couldn't, I just couldn't believe it. I was like obsessed with this idea. I, I started, um, you know, I was, I had a full-time job, but I was doing research. And so I actually hired some part-time research assistants and I was paying them like, you know, less than $5 an hour. And they were sending me PowerPoint charts and Excel spreadsheets. And I was like, Oh my gosh, what else could I, what else can I find and, mm -hmm. and, and, and see and really outsource. And I had read some great articles about it. So it was kind of challenging and challenging myself. And, um, the, the ultimate pinnacle of what I did is, uh, I was coming up on the five year anniversary of when I had proposed to my wife. And I had this idea of what if I could get a beautiful oil on canvas painting recreating this moment. And I had a photograph of it. So I went to Odesk and started looking for oil-based painters. And lo and behold, apparently Vietnam is like a specialized country for, uh, for, for painting. And I, I found someone and they sent me some, they sent me some samples and I sent them the photo and I said, this is how I would tweak it. And I have this, the most gorgeous painting of one of the most important parts of my life. And I think I paid like $200 for it. Mm. And it's huge. It's, it's gigantic. And I was just like so blown away about the amount of things that I could outsource. And then my wife and I, we built an iPad application using outsourced designers and developers. And, um, and so for me, it was a natural instinct to go there. Uh, and we did, we found some people and, um, but, you know, as you pointed out on the manufacturing side, I think the talent pool is less deep, um, than it is on obviously like website design and programming and some of these other things, but you can find resources there. 
And it's a good way to start. It's also a good way to learn how to manage people and give very clear directions about what you want. Because it's so easy to fall into the trap of, oh, that looks good. Yeah, no, I think you did a good job here. And we're so worried about offending people rather than, again, just saying, okay, I like that. But why did you put the button there? Or why did you use a snap button versus a regular button? Or how come the seam doesn't stretch in the back? And um, no, I really want it to look exactly like this. And here's these three pictures. And let me point arrows and, and, and just be very, very clear about what you want. Because most of the time when you're dealing with Upwork providers, it's English is a second language to them. Mm-hmm. So you have to be very clear about how you speak to them. And I think you know, it's not that they're not brilliant because many of them are. It's just that English is their second language. So I think the rule of thumb that somebody had said to me is write clear instructions as if you were giving instructions to a first or second grader. Mm-hmm. If, if that's the kind of instruction that a first or second grader could understand, then it's going to come through really clearly. And that's kind of the case also with speaking to, you know, people where English is, is yeah. their first language. You need to be very clear about what you want because if you give vague directions – or vague instructions, you're going to get, you know, the the amount of difference that you can get in return is, you know, it's it's input output. What you put in comes out. So, um, you know, that, that was a great lesson. It's a long-winded answer to your question. But <laughs> no, I, I think uh, that's a, that's great advice. And even like you're saying, explaining it simply is a great exercise, not just for. Uh, you know, for non-English speakers and, and not just for even English speakers, but also kind of forces you to think through it completely. I think um, that's I think, exactly right. Yeah, yeah I think exactly. Einstein had that, had that quote about something about if you can't explain something simply, then you don't understand it well enough. And I think that's a important thing for you to to understand before you try to get everyone else to understand it. Um, so this, this experience of Upwork then. So you, I think one of the issues uh, people run into when they hire remote workers or from other countries is is finding high quality workers not necessarily because like you're saying that they're not intelligent or anything but there's just so many workers on there's so right. many potential candidates and a lot of times you know it, it it is advantageous for them to kind of carpet bomb I guess all of the listings out there you might just get a kind of uh, I guess generic uh, applicants that might not fit exactly what you're looking for so tell us about your hiring process how do you filter for you know great candidates and like how do you conduct your interviews to make sure that you're hiring the right people. Yeah. So, so uh, I don't know if this was right or wrong, but what I did, and I, I felt like I had really great results on there. So, so maybe I did do something right. Uh, what I did is I would I would look for as close a match from a category perspective of what I was looking for. And once I got the the pool of candidates, and let's say that you get it to, you know, kind of eight or 10,000 candidates, then I would start going and being very specific. I want a candidate who has put in 100 hours on Upwork because I don't have, I wasn't willing to kind of spend my time and resources towards um, kind of helping somebody learn the Upwork platform. So I wanted somebody who already knew it, was already comfortable using the Upwork platform and had ratings. So I wanted somebody who had 100 hours in and was at least four and a half stars. Um, And then there are certain tests that you can do. So for programming, for example, if you're looking for um, an iOS developer, you can say, you know, I want them to be in the top uh, 10% of the iOS 
testing or I want them to be in the top 10% of C plus or, you know, you can look at and, and I want them to be in the top 10% of English speaking. What You can filter all of these things. And generally, I would try and get the pool down to like two to 500 applicants. And then I would uh, start clicking through and going into their profiles. And then I would personally invite them to apply to the job. And um, I would I would generally invite kind of 20 to 50 candidates um, and I would ask them, I would, I, would, I would be very clear, this is what the job is, or here's a brief description of what I'm trying to do. Tell me why you think you're the right candidate for this and include any relevant portfolio samples. And then I would kind of further narrow it down. And you know, then I tended to have a gut feeling based on previous experience. And I would just kind of try and make a quick decision. In some cases, I would do tests. So I would, uh, I remember we, we were, for our iPad application, we needed a song. So I went to sound engineers and I said, you know, this is the type of song that I want. I want you to, it was almost like a 99 designs process, right? I said, I want you to submit a 15 second clip. And for some people, they were like, I'm not gonna do that. I'm busy enough on Upwork and I don't, I don't need this guy. And, but I would get kind of five to 10 samples and I was like, man, I really like this one. I already know I'm going to like it. So I'll kind of continue to build this out and then I would go and I would hire them. And, uh, and yeah, so that was, that was generally the process. No, no magic pill to it, but just taking the time to interview and do the work up front because that saves you a lot of time on the back end. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. So I wanted to talk a little bit about the, the growth of the business, the marketing behind this. So I think earlier you were talking about first starting off by selling to friends and family. And, uh, you know, what happened after that? Like, how did you start, I guess, selling to, to strangers? Like, what kind of marketing channels worked best for you early on? And is this still what's working today? Yeah, I mean, I think what we focused on in the early days was uh, it was all about email. Um, before we even launched our Shopify store, we had built a splash page and, uh, I can't, I can't remember the tool we used off the top of my head, but it was really easy. We basically uploaded a photo that we had designed and, um, and then we were capturing emails. And so everybody we talked to, we were like, Oh, go sign up for our email list. And, uh, it's one of my friends who's the CEO of a, a company called Lovesack. He said to me, he gave me some great advice in the early days. He said, whatever you do, you've got to be proud to wear your own T-shirt, so to speak. And, you know, in my case, it actually was a shirt. <laughs> but in whatever business you're doing, you've got to be so proud about it that you're telling everybody about it. So that's what we did. In fact, me and my brother-in-law, we used to challenge ourselves. If we ever got in an airplane, we would, you know, how many people could you tell about the company. And, um, and so by the time we launched, we had, I don't know, 5,000 emails that we had collected over the course of a, a month or two. Um, and, uh, and, and a lot of those people were one degree connections, people that we had met or knew personally, or were kind of, you know, a friend of a friend. And so when we launched, um, we actually did quite well. I mean, we probably did, you know, neither of us we're doing this full time. We probably did about $80,000 in the first two months of the business. Um, again, with zero market, we didn't spend anything on Facebook or Instagram or Google or any of those channels that we use and, and kind of leverage today. 
Um, but it was really just about email. And e- still to this day, email is without a doubt the highest return on investment from a marketing perspective because it really doesn't, it costs, it doesn't cost very much time um, or doesn't cost very much money. You build a template, you use a service. Uh, we use Clavio as, as our email service provider. And, um, and you know, we send these emails out and inevitably every email we send out comes back in the form of revenue. Uh, now we use a lot more uh, channels, everything on the digital side, to also doing things on the physical side like pop-up retail events. Um, and on the digital side, we use all, all your basics, you know, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Google. Uh, and we're always kind of trying to tweak and get, you know, get the most effective spend on our uh, most effective return on our spend in those channels. Wow. So it's interesting that you essentially manually built your email list. You know, there's a lot of kind of talk when people are building their mailing list about how to get it, this done automatically or at scale, trying to push as many people through the funnel as possible onto splash pages possible to collect their email addresses. But it sounds like you guys just kind of talked to people and then got them onto the mailing list that way. Uh, so obviously a very effective strategy to get 5,000 subscribers within the, you said it just took a month to do this? Yeah, I think it was one or two months from the time we had the splash page to the time we put the site up. But yeah. you know, the, the, the thing is, is that it, like just think about your own experience. Even though people are transacting digitally more than they ever have before, they're still making those decisions based on their experience in the real world. So if you, you know, if you meet somebody online, and that's kind of a cliche phrase, but if you know you have a Facebook friend and you see that they posted something, versus a friend in person tells you, "Oh, I'm building this really cool thing." Um, you know, that in-person experience is still so strong. It's still Mm -hmm. such a strong motivating factor. And it's very real. Think about the relationships you build in person versus building online. Um, so we, we try and have physical touch points with our, our customers or our prospective customers by doing events and getting out and talking to them and meeting them in retail stores, uh, because it makes the brand tangible for them. Uh, but you know, obviously you still need those digital channels to help people remember and, um, and continue their conversion funnel. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to boil this down to just numbers, but you are essentially saying that the people that you do meet in person, even though it might be a more manual process, even though it might not be as, I guess, scalable, it's still per person is still much higher converting than finding someone online. So it's worth investing the time into, you know, running these events, these pop-up uh, shops and actually meeting and creating these physical touch points like you're calling it because they are high converting, even though they're not as scalable as, you know, running ads online. I think that's yeah, a very... without question. I, and and that, that's the other thing that we love about Shopify is, and I, I know we're not supposed to like, that's now we're not, not the point of this, but I really believe in the platform. We have this point of sale system that ties directly into our database, Right. So, you know, we we go into these events and even if the event only does a couple grand in sales, uh, you know, it's like we well think about the customers that we just made and that we created a touch point with them. And, you know, our our head of events is so awesome. She always says to me, you know, I got these business cards and I'm going to email them and tell them how grateful I am that they came and stopped by and learned about the brand. 
that interaction builds brand loyalty. And as many people have pointed out, you don't need to think about the millions of dollars that you're going to make. You need to think about how you're going to create 1,000 loyal fans mm -hmm. of your mm -hmm. product um, or your store. And, and that's what we just kept hitting our team over the heads with. Like, how can we get 1,000 loyal people that we know are going to come back over and over again? Okay, we've got 1,000. How are we going to get 10,000? Okay, how are we going to get 100,000? Um, and, and for me, that means wearing that t-shirt proudly and saying, we're proud of the product that we make and we can't wait to tell you about it. And we can't wait for you to try it and, and realize that you love it too. Mm, amazing. So, so what were you, for anyone out there that wants to take this similar approach that doesn't have a mailing list, maybe doesn't even have a store yet and, and wants to build their mailing list and is ready to kind of do it manually like you did it. What were you, I guess, how were you approaching this? Like, were you just going up to friends and family and telling them about the, the, you know, the product that doesn't exist yet and then telling them to check out the splash page to sign up? Like, what was the, I don't want to call it pitch, but like, what was the process of getting people that you met offline onto an online mailing list? Yeah, so we, we kind of built what we called pass along cards, right? So, um, you know, it was very simple, had the website on there. So it was at least memorable because our first, website was longer than just roan.com. It took us a while to acquire that domain. And, um, and so, you know, we'd interact, we'd tell people about it, people would ask questions, and then we'd leave them behind with this card that they could go and, you know, put it in to their phone or their computer when they had a second. Sometimes we, you know, we would be there with people and be like, oh, go on right now, the, sign in, put your email in, right? Um, uh, you know, tried not to make it a high pressure sales pitch, but we were just very passionate and enthusiastic. And I give uh, my brother-in-law a lot of credit. I, I learned from his example this way. He's, you know, he'll, he will tell everybody about what we're doing and what we're building. And that enthusiasm rubs off. It's so funny, you know, you spend so much time building a product or a store, but it's, it's easy to become an introvert, whether you're an introvert or an extrovert, it's easy to become an introvert about your own product. You don't want to seem boastful. You mm -hmm. don't want to feel like you're pitching friends. But really, you got to be proud of what you're doing and, and say, even if even if you have to do it in a shy way, be so sincere. Oh, it means so much if you would, you know, go to the store and sign up. And um, you know, I really appreciate your support. Uh, I I think just ask, you know, don't be afraid to ask people and say, oh, you should check it out and love for you to to learn more. You're the perfect customer. No, I think it's a good point about how you have to be proud to you know wear the shirt or wear the logo, or wear the brand um, out there because you also have to think about am I building a company that or building businesses or building products that will actually give value back to people? You know, if you if you had some cure to some disease out there, you wouldn't be meek about it if you know you're giving value to people out there by giving them this cure. And obviously, this is an extreme example, my example that is. But if you are, if you do. Have have a product that is going to generate value in people's lives, you should be excited to talk about it. And I think it's important to think about businesses and think about your product in that way that not you don't want to think about you being intrusive by talking about your product or your company, but think about you want to share what's valuable, what could add value to their lives. And once you start thinking that way, well, hopefully you can build a company and business that way to begin with. And when you do that, I think it becomes a lot easier to talk about it because you're not just being boastful. You're actually trying to bring value value to people's lives. That's exactly right. I, we, we talk about all the time, you know, the friend who is just, you know, kind of 
asks, 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 asks. All they do is ask for things. Mm-hmm. You know, can you help me? They only talk to you when they need something. Nobody likes that person, right? Yeah. Rather than the friend who's like always giving, giving, giving. And then when that person finally asks you for something, you can't wait to, to help them. And so when we think about ourselves as a brand personified, we want to be like that second friend. We want to mm-hmm. be always giving value. Are we giving the best product that really you know, meets expectations? Are we providing content that's relevant for our customers? Are we you know, kind of building a great customer service team that you know, gives back? Because if we're giving, then when customers think about buying activewear, they're only going to want to come to us versus kind of saying, oh, here's this promotion. Here's this thing. Did you know about this thing about our product? Oh, it's so great. We're so awesome. You know, just buy from us. And I think it's so easy to fall into that trap when you look at people's social media feeds, it's just, it's me, 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 mm. me, me, mm-hmm. versus how can I get back to you? And I think your point is is really well taken. Awesome. Yeah, so I, I want to talk about one last thing before we close this out, which was uh, brought up in the pre-interview question about uh, some marketing strategies. And it has here that you guys have launched some pretty unique and funny campaigns for a- April Fool's as well as Lime Day <laughs> instead of Prime Day. So tell us a little more about this. Like, How does this, how does having coming up with unique and funny campaigns actually help, I guess, dr- dr- uh, help with your marketing, help you actually drive traffic and sales to your to your store? Yeah, so, you know, I... I think people, again, this comes back to exactly what we were just talking about. People like to laugh. They, you know, they want to they wanna have fun. And if we can provide value in the form of humor, then I think, again, it builds customer loyalty. So recently on April Fool's Day, uh, it's not uncommon for stores to come up with a product that they're not actually selling. Um, but we kind of came up with this idea of what we called the never nude short. And it's an, a reference, um, you know, to Tobias Funke from Arrested Development when he decides he's going to be a never nude and wears these jean shorts <laughs> all the time. And so we, you know, we took some pictures of this, like, like we were actually launching this product. And um, it, it's, it was amazing because I think people got it and got the email. And for at least some people, they were like, are they really making this? Are they actually building this product? And it got them to click through. And then when they got to the, the splash page, there were some funny pictures there and, you know, some gifts and it made them laugh. And then we said, you know, obviously we're not actually making this short, but since you clicked through, here's a, here's a code to get free shipping or something like that. And it ended up being one of our all-time best sales days. And, um, and you know, the, we, we kind of took that same thing Amazon has built this new Black Friday in July, which is generally, or is it June? Maybe I, I'm not, I don't remember the exact day, um, but it, you know, it's essentially Black Friday in the middle of the summer, and it's an incredible strategy. But we kind of asked ourselves, how can we capitalize on that? And we had read that online shopping as a whole increased on Prime Day, mm-hmm. not just on Amazon. So clearly people were out with their wallets open. How could we capitalize on it? And one of our main competitors is Lululemon. And we're not afraid to talk about the fact that we don't think men should be wearing a brand called Lululemon. And, you know, that, you know, guys don't want to be shopping at the same store as their mom or their sister. Uh, So we created what we call Lime Day uh, so that you didn't have to, you know, be stuck in a lemon costume. 
<laughs> and uh, you know had some clever copy and some good imagery and it was great and the, it, it went so well and we received some positive press on it and um, and yeah so it was you know just some some thought and uh, and energy and I give I give the team uh, our team all the credit because I had nothing to do with either <laughs> of these ideas and they were brilliant. Very cool. It sounds like a key to this too is tying it to an existing kind of current event so that you can sort of ride that wave as well. So I think that's a very unique way to do that. Uh, so what's uh, what's planned for the future for Rona? What do you guys have uh, lined up for the next year or so? Well, we've got a lot of things uh, coming. We are uh, launching our first retail store ever next year. Um, we are also um, currently doing uh, something that I'm very proud of called the 12 Weeks of Roan. And um, what this is, is you know you, you hear all the time Black Friday just becomes this unbelievable day of, of shopping and focus. But Really, we wanted the the holiday season to start earlier and um, and offer things up again, offer value up to our community before just Black Friday. Not just in the form of discounts, but in the forms of other you know other things like you know we we've got some really cool new products that we're launching. Some e-touch gloves that are made from this luxurious Polar Tech fabric and are built for running. Uh, We've got this water flask that will keep your drinks cold for 24 hours or hot for 12. Uh, you know, just really cool new products that we're talking about. And, and people who participate um, get access to these, to these deals. But in addition, we're also issuing our community a weekly challenge. And the challenges are as basic as, you know, go and have coffee with a friend you haven't seen uh, in a long time to as hard as, um, you know, meet, go and meet a homeless person and have a meal with them. Don't just bring them a meal, have a meal with them and talk to them and learn about their life. And, you know, part of our messaging and brand is really about, you know, becoming better in our daily pursuits. And so we wanted to, again, to give value and inspirational stories uh, and things that led up to the holiday season so that, you know, we kind of all collectively got in that spirit. So, so that's something that I'm really proud of and, and we're working hard on right now. Very cool. So thanks so much, Nate. So Roan.com, again, is the site, R-H-O-N-E.com. Anywhere else you recommend the listeners go and check out or, or is there a way for them to find out or sign up for this, uh, uh, you know, upcoming events that you guys have? Yeah, if, if they go to this, the website, that's the best place to sign up. Um, our products are also sold at REI. Nordstrom, Bloomingdale's, and every Equinox. So um, we've got some great retail partners that we also sell to. Awesome. Thanks so much again for your time, Nate. All right. Thanks, Felix. Thanks for listening to Shopify Masters, the e-commerce marketing podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs. To start your store today, visit shopify.com masters to claim your extended 30-day free trial.